Thank you, Blair. The scripture is always timely, and sometimes it's just more glaring, as we'll see uh, tonight as we work through this passage. And th- this has been our, our focus all along. It's been the focus of Peter's letter is that, man, as believers, we are exiles. We're elect exiles. We're chosen by God and rejected by the world that this world is not our home, and what we can expect in this world because, because we've aligned with Jesus, because he has chosen us, called us, what we can expect is persecution, is suffering. Um, but in that, all we have is hope. All we have is hope because we're following the example of our Lord who himself suffered and his suffering was was followed by glory. And that, that's our hope as well. So turn to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. We'll pick up in verse 6. We left off last week. And I, mean, I, I love um, good storytelling. I think most humans do. We just love good storytelling. And for me, most of my life, that's been through uh, movies and books. But I, I, love, I love flashbacks. Uh, I love flashbacks, not personal ones, but like in a movie, a good flashback, if used well, brings a story together in a unique way. And, and as I was studying for this passage, as we finish out Peter's first letter, man, I, I couldn't help but to imagine Peter with his gnarled hands holding the pen and just pausing as he's writing out these last words of encouragement, of these last commands, of <laughs> in a, such a beautiful way depicting our hope, I couldn't help but to picture him just to pause and set down the pen as his mind would race back to these awesome and terrible flashbacks from his personal experience with Jesus. And so I want us to do that just, just quickly, just quickly before we dive into the passage to, to have these flashbacks with Peter and to, to remember, like because I, I, I can't help but to picture him remembering sitting with Jesus, sitting with Jesus and telling Jesus, looking into the eyes of Jesus and saying, oh, no, 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 I, I don't care if everyone else abandons you. I'm with you to the end. I will die with you. And, and I imagine him flashing to Jesus saying, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then flashing to denying in in fear, in absolute fear of this little girl who's accusing him of knowing Jesus and denying and denying and denying again and hearing the crow and looking over and making eye contact again with Jesus. The flash to him alone in an alley somewhere weeping bitterly because he knows he's denied Jesus. Picture him flashing to the empty tomb and running past John and looking inside and seeing the, the cloth folded neatly. I picture him flashing to that day on the shore. <laughs> it's a good memory. When he sees Jesus, when he sees Jesus on the shore, he knows it's his Lord, and he dives in, and he swims, and he eats fish with Jesus again, and, and then he hears Jesus say, 
Do you love me? Do you love me? And he flashes and hears Jesus say, feed my sheep. It's been restored. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. I picture him remembering the taste of glory that Peter got on the mountain of transfiguration. Knowing that was just a taste of the hope that is to be realized. So I want us to, to have those close by as we work through this passage to imagine as Peter is laying out these, these commands and, and admonishing us and encouraging us and challenging us and laying out the hope that we have. I want these images close by to grab. So 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood. Happened early tonight. What in the world? It's fresh, right? This is real. This is real. It was real 2,000 years ago, and it's real right now. Knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So he opens, and, and this is flowing from, I mean, obviously, as he's writing this, he doesn't pause and take a week off. Last week, we ended with that we're supposed to clothe ourselves in humility. Clothe ourselves in humility. And he, and, and, he, and he says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The mighty hand of God. So this is rich biblical imagery. This is in the Old Testament. There's so many places we could go. The most familiar for all of us would be the Exodus. This is a euphemism, right? That the mighty hand of God or the strong arm of the Lord or the outstretched arm of God. It's a euphemism for the power and the desire of God to save and to keep his people, to rescue and to protect those who belong to him. And so that, that imagery should be in our minds that yes, this is like under the mighty hand of God, the God who saves, the God who delivers. And, and in a little while we'll see what has he called us out from? What has he saved us from? And what is he saving us for? What is he delivering us to? Those images should be fresh in our mind and he's saying under that mighty hand, 
the hand of God that is strong to save and to keep, to protect. Humble yourself. But we're told to do it. He told us earlier in the chapter, you clothe yourself. And he gave us that picture, the picture of putting on humility as it were like a, like a robe. And now he's saying, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself. So let's talk about humility for a minute. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And if you're dyslexic like me, that just melted your brain. So I'm gonna read it for us again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less, right? That we're not to be spiritual Eeyores, walking around with a low self-esteem and hating ourselves and despising things about who we are. Like, that's not what he's saying. That's not humility. Humility is, no, no, I, I just don't think of myself very often. And here's what's beautiful is that happens, humility, biblically, Humility happens when I have a right view of God. When I see God, when I see him as the one with the mighty hand to save and I have a right view of God, what that does for me, it gives me a right view of myself. I'm able to be lowly. I'm able to bring myself under because I see, oh, God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he's all-wise and he's ever-present and he is good and gracious and merciful and steadfast in his love. And he has declared the end from the beginning and he's perfect in holiness and justice and righteousness and I should fear him. I should absolutely fear that God but with a fear that doesn't cause me to run away from him in terror, but a fear that causes me to run towards him in hope. The same God who I should fear is the same God I should run to for his salvation because his arm is strong to save. What the fear of the Lord does, it gives me a right understanding of who God is. This gives me my identity then in Christ, a right knowledge of who God says that I am in Jesus. Humility is knowing who I am in Christ. That doesn't make me hate myself. That gives me confidence, not in my strength or my ability or my wit or my wisdom, but in Jesus, in what God has said to be true of me. Who I am because Jesus took off his righteousness, put on my sin, and in place of my sin, <laughs> clothed me in his righteousness. I know the clap is awkward, but I think it's less awkward than the shaky cry voice, so bear with me. Matthew 18, one through four, Jesus gives us a picture of humility. He says, at that, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he, Jesus, put him, the child, in the midst of them, the disciples, and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The humility of a child shows itself in their dependence on their parents and their trust in them to provide for them, to protect for them, to care for them. 
Humbling myself under the mighty hand of God looks like recognizing my dependence on God's ability alone to save and to keep me. Humbling myself under the mighty hand of God looks like trusting in his promises in times of peace and in times of suffering. It looks like walking in repentance when I fail to trust and love him as I should. So, He's about to point out two things that we really need to let go of in different ways. And first is this self-reliant pride, which again, Peter would know. The flash of saying to Jesus, I'll never abandon you, trusting in his own ability. He said, man, in this world, under this kind of persecution, with the enemy that we have, we can't operate in in our own power and our own wisdom. We need to humble ourselves. Humbling myself under the mighty hand of God will also look like casting all my fears and anxieties onto the Lord. Then he will, he will exalt us. Listen to this. This is from uh, David Helm. He said, the Christian's future inheritance and exaltation that is, our eternal share in the glory of Christ will be awarded to us on the day of his appearing, which Peter has mentioned in every chapter. But that promised day only comes after this brief season of present-day sufferings. Suffering always precedes subsequent glories. It was so for God's Son. It'll be so for us as well. Jesus himself, as we've seen through Peter's letter, Jesus himself is the ultimate example of suffering in humility, but that suffering giving way to exaltation and glory. I encourage you to meditate on Philippians 2 again when you have time. But moving on to verse 7, he says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him. So it, the, the anxiety or the fear or the care that Peter has in the crosshairs, it, it, they're not just any random kind of anxieties. Like he has specifically in the crosshairs the anxiety that comes from real persecution, from, from living in a world where people want to imprison you, fire you, disown you, torture you, kill you for your allegiance to Jesus. That is the specific fear he's telling these believers in Asia Minor to cast on the Lord. But I would say within the scope are any anxieties, any fears, real or in our own minds that we create ourselves from some broken part of us living in a broken world, the, the, the application would be the same, that we're to cast those anxieties, we're to cast those fears onto the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson points out that the word for cast here, it's, I keep doing this because in my mind, he, he pointed out that uh, it's the same word in Luke where the disciples take their cloak and they cast it on the donkey for Jesus to sit. And, and it's that, that picture of, I'm taking off this anxiety, 
and I'm casting that on the Lord. Why? Because he's mighty to save. Because it's his arm that's strong. Because he can bear up underneath that burden that I can't. He can handle our fears, our cares, our anxieties, all of them. He can bear up underneath that. And so we cast it on him. Sinclair Ferguson, he, he, he went on and he said this. He, Peter, doesn't say that if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't have anxieties. He tells us what to do with the anxieties that we do have. We have action to take here. We must respond in and with faith, taking those thoughts captive, preaching the gospel to yourself. And he referenced Psalm 42 and 43, which I'll just mention and make a note of it as you wrestle with your own anxieties and fears. Awesome place to go, Psalm 42 and 43. So what does it look like? I, I would pause. It says he cares for us. I love this. He is not beating us over the head saying, man, get over yourself. Get over it. Like, what, what do you have to be anxious about? Look at everything that's been given. He doesn't treat us that way. He cares for us. He doesn't bust, he doesn't bust our heads for having anxiety. He, he tells us what to do with it. Man, how gracious is that? How understanding, he knows our frame. He knows our weakness. So what does it look like to cast our anxieties, right? Is this gonna be a weird, like, new age? Let's all visualize our anxieties. Ball them up, no, I'm not going there. Like, I don't know what that means. So well, what is it, but what, what does it mean to cast? Do you just do this? Like, that's what I do, apparently. Like, what does it mean to cast our cares? Here's what I believe he's teaching us. Pray. Pray. Jesus' greatest temptation to be anxious was that night in the garden. He knew what was coming. The weight of what's coming was so intense, he was sweating blood. And what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. He he told God everything that was happening, what he was thinking, what he was feeling. He went to the Father. How much more should we stop and pray when we experience this anxiety? Pray. Two, preach. Preach. Preach the gospel to yourself. I love it. Even in, in Jesus' prayer, he says, what should I, and he already had, but then when he comes back again, he says, what should I do? Pray that you would take this from me? No, this is the very reason I came. What's he doing? Jesus is preaching the gospel to himself. He's preaching the God. He's reminding himself of the gospel. How much more should we, when we're faced with anxiety and fear, whether real or imagined, man, preach the gospel to yourself. Three, believe. Believe. Not Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost, no, 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 uh, Last Crusade, awesome movie, horrible theology, not that kind of belief. Not like I muster it up in myself and I just believe enough and the invisible bridge will appear. If you haven't seen the movie, your fault, it's classic. How do you have you not seen that movie? But like not that kind of faith. What's it? No, yeah, believe, like, mean, like, yeah, like, pray it. 
preach it, believe it. What do I mean? Live it out. We're meant to live out our faith. Put your faith into action. Like, let what you believe dictate how you live, and your feelings eventually will catch up to that truth. Last thing, confess. Confess. I share it. Have at least one person in this world, in the church, that you trust and you know loves you, and get those fears out into the open. Talk about it. Talk about it. Have accountability. He cares for you. John 16, 33, Jesus speaking, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Man, and here I picture Peter flashing back to Jesus coming to. Remember, they're in the garden, and Jesus said, watch and pray with me. And Jesus goes a little ways off, and he prays, and he comes back, and what's Peter doing? He's asleep. (laughs) Jesus wakes him up, and he says, could you not even watch for an hour? He's telling us, be vigilant. Be vigilant. Jesus had warned Peter, the devil's asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And then he tells him, you pray and watch. And he fell asleep. (laughs) He could visually see Jesus, and he nodded off. How much more should we be mindful of our need for vigilance in this world, this world that is hostile against the gospel, that does not love us because we align ourselves with Jesus? Thomas Schreiner said this, believers must remain vigilant and alert until the end because the devil seeks to destroy their faith. The devil inflicts persecution on believers so that they will deny Christ. Peter betrays the devil as a roaring lion seeking to devour its prey. The devil roars like a lion to induce fear in the people of God. In other words, Persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will give up at the prospect of suffering. If they deny the faith, then the devil has devoured them, bringing them back into his fold. So let's learn from Peter's example to be vigilant. We know. We have the same warning that Jesus gave Peter. The enemy is trying to destroy you. He wants to destroy your faith. He will use fear and persecution to try to do that. So be vigilant. Be watchful. So don't be drunk on fear or self-reliance. Don't be drunk on you. Your feelings, your thoughts, your desires, your strength, your accomplishments, your failures, your shortcomings. Think of yourself less. Be humble. Don't be drunk on comfort and safety the way the world defines comfort and safety. See yourself in light of the grace of God. That will have a sobering effect and prepare you for the attack of the enemy. 
Listen to Sanchez. The devil is a real foe, but he is a defeated foe. He's a real threat, but he is a limited threat. He's on a leash, and he can only do what God permits him to do. And God has granted us the grace to resist him. Verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Stand fast in the faith. This is how we resist our trust in the goodness and power and wisdom and promises and grace of the Lord. Where does Peter want us right now as we even hear this verse? I mean, if you picture this verse in your mind, the the powerful hand of the Lord, the hand of salvation, hand of perseverance over us and us bowing our heads underneath it in a posture of humility, submission. This is how we resist. We trust him. We trust him. We believe his word. It says resist him firm in the faith. This is why our pursuit of doctrine, of sound doctrine, of loving theology is so essential. Because I'm not talking about just the gathering of information. Doctrine is good. It's the teaching of the Bible. It's doctrine and theology as informed by Scripture that allows us to see and to know God, to see who He is and how we're to respond to Him, to see ourselves for who we are in Christ and to know how to live and to know how to submit, to know how to serve. It informs everything. He's saying, yeah, stand fast in that. Stand firm in it. Know it. Love it. Drink of it often. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Share it with one another. Stand firm in the faith. So to Doriani's here, comments here, he says, Peter's counsel aims at a faithful life more directly than a long life. I'm going to read that again because I think it's important. And I put it in bold and underlined it in my notes so that I would remember that it's important. Peter's counsel aims at a faithful life more directly than a long life. He commands the church to humble yourself. Cast all your anxieties on him. Be self-controlled and alert. Resist the devil. Peter's Peter's commands rest on a theological foundation. As this last passage begins and ends with God, his hand is mighty, he cares for us, he's gracious, he has called us to glory and promises to restore us. He can make good on his promises because he, God, possesses eternal power. Clearly, the character of God is the basis for our faithfulness and confidence. As we will be reminded of in a second, God has sovereign rule over everyone and everything. The suffering of believers, the roaring and persecution of the cowardly lion, all fall under his, Yahweh's, sovereign rule. Christians alone in the world can know that all suffering, no matter how unjust or seemingly unnecessary, holds eternal value. 
God is using all things for his glory. God is using all things for his glory. The same glory he is preparing us to partake in for eternity. Let me stop and think about that. People are suffering, period. People suffer. We alone know, we can know that there's not only purpose for suffering, but there is eternal purpose for any suffering that we go through. Any affliction, any trial, any tribulation, there is eternal suffering. There is is within eternal suffering purpose. We know this. We can believe this. We, We have to remind ourselves of this. Why would we go through temporary suffering? Because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. God's glory. God's glory. Now we don't even, we can't comprehend that yet. The the absolute going public of God's holiness, his goodness, the, the sum of his divine attributes on full display for you and I to enjoy forever. Are you kidding me? We don't have a clue yet. Peter got a taste of it on that mountain. And we each, maybe, we've each had a taste of it when we came to Christ and experienced salvation. You've had a taste of it when you share the gospel with somebody. You have a taste of it when we're unified and of one mind, worshiping the Lord together in here. We get taste of it, but one day, man, we're gonna see face to face, and we're gonna see God's glory in the person of Jesus. That's our hope we get to share in that glory forever. And we can know that whatever we suffered now, man, not only do we not compare it to the glory that's to come, but we can bear up underneath it and know the safest place for me to be is to humble myself, not trust my own mind, not trust my own feelings, but trust myself to the wisdom and the plan and the power of Yahweh, of God, of Jesus. He says, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's reminding them, like, you're, you're not alone in this. You're not alone in this. And what Brody preached, I think it was last week, that Blair referred to in our time of prayer of, you know, we all, we're, we're the body of Christ. And when there's, a part of the body suffering, we all suffer together. We're not isolated from what our brothers are experiencing in Africa and China and North Korea and Afghanistan and all these places where there's intense persecution. We're all, we all experience that together. But he's saying it that yet to this church, to these churches in Asia Minor, you're experiencing that kind of intense persecution personally. Know that you're not alone. And not only is it, again, just so timely knowing what our, our brother, that, who we love, though we've never seen him in the flesh <laughs> outside of some goofy pictures, like, like we know what he's going through and to a degree and we're burdened for him, we're gonna pray for him and, and so many believers around the world. Uh, my mind went to a, a book I read years ago now. Hold on, 
I lied to you. A book I listened to years ago now by Nick Ripkin, it's not his real name, but I don't know his real name or remember it, but it's called The Insanity of God. And in that book, what Nick Ripkin does is he goes around and he, he was a missionary for years and he experienced suffering and for the gospel and he was so close to throwing in the towel on his faith and, and so, but what he realized was there's so many believers suffering worse around the world. There's so many believers who are persecuted worse around the world and so he began to go around and interview these believers, these Christians who had suffered for the gospel and definitely worth your time uh, to, to read or listen to. And, but I remember there was one guy, and, and it's so close to what we heard Bra- uh, Blair lead us in and, and what, what our brother, how he asked for prayer. Because he, he's interviewing this guy who's given decades of his life, separated from his family because he would not renounce the name of Jesus. He suffered in prison for languished in prison for years and and so he ends the interview and he says how can people like how can the churches in the west how can we support you how can we pray for you and he said yeah but absolutely pray for us but it, but he said this and I'm going to read it this is what his comment was to us who aren't maybe personally experiencing the same intense persecution in our own individual lives and in this specific church he said this Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. That is our witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So should we pray for the persecuted church? Absolutely. Consistently. Absolutely. And what else should we do to support them? Support them however we can. In Hebrews chapter 10, he's, he, he commends that church. He says, yeah, I mean, you, you visited people. You identify with people even though they were suffering for the gospel. You were there for them whatever way we can minister to them tangibly. Yeah, let's do that. But ultimately, let's do this. Let's join them in the cause. <laughs> let's be faithful to the same cause. Don't give up in freedom, but we never would have given up in persecution. What's he saying? Man, preach the gospel. Just tell everybody about Jesus. Join them. Identify with them. Have solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are suffering in this. In what? Tell people about Jesus. Verse 10. And this has become my favorite verse in, in the letter. And after you have suffered a little while. And after you have suffered a little while. This life is but a vapor. It's here for a second and it's gone. And Jesus could return at any time. You believe that, Red Oak? You better. That's what the Bible says. Yeah. Jesus could return at any time. We're sometime in between the times of when he ascended and when he's coming back. He rode the cloud chariot into heaven. He's going to ride it back down. We're going to meet him. I don't understand how any of that works. It doesn't matter. That's what we're looking forward to. It's a little while. And either way, even if Jesus tarries for another 700 years, you and I still only have a little while. 
And 80 years from now, we're gone. Maybe some of us will still be here, but you'd be really old and you wouldn't even remember I said that. Like, right? Like, we have only a little while. Whatever sufferings we experience are temporary. But listen to what he says. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Humble yourself, cast your cares, resist the devil, stand firm. Absolutely, we have responsibility, but unless we get it wrong, remember the God of all grace. How are we going to be faithful to the end? What keeps us faithful to the end? Stay underneath that mighty hand. Why? Because that's the hand that saves, and he is full of grace towards us. He's not a gracious God. He's not a God of some grace. He's a God of all grace because it's his, one of his divine attributes and God is infinite. There isn't, he doesn't have to measure out a little bit of grace for you, a little bit of grace for me. I hope I had enough to get everybody safe to the end. He is the God of all grace and it's he that has called us to eternal glory in Christ Jesus. And each part of this phrase is amazing and deep and rich. It's by his grace and because of his calling. Now listen, in the Bible, there is a general call that people can reject, and many do. There's a general call to salvation that many people reject. That's not this call. This is the call of God on his elect, on his chosen people, and it is a call that will not be denied. He has called us in Christ. Listen to this. Got excited. Here we go. Sarah wrote this out for me from her notes in another study, but this weekend we had time to work through it together. Just some things in Scripture that we're called to. 1 Corinthians 1.9, we're called into fellowship with the Son. 1 Timothy 6.12, we're called to eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we're called into God's kingdom and glory. 1 Peter 2.9, we're called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 5.10, we're called to his eternal glory. 2 Peter 1.3, we're called to his glory and excellence. This will be in the notes later. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. His calling on us, nothing keep, can keep us from it. Nothing, absolutely nothing. He's called us to an eternal glory in Christ Jesus. This calling is in Christ. Don't miss that phrase. It's not an add-on or an afterthought. It's everything. It's everything. We're called in Christ who himself humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, suffered and died in our place. He humbled himself underneath the mighty hand of God and he suffered for a little while. And he was raised and more than raised, he's exalted at the right hand of God and he's returning for us to join him, to partake in his glory. 
That's our example and that's our hope is that we are in Christ because Jesus identified with you in your sin and our suffering, we now get to identify with Jesus in his glory. 1 Peter 2.9, I'm going to read it again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Gets even better. It says, will himself. You see it? Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. Flashback to Jesus on the beach with Peter. He's denied him three times. Deep betrayal. And Jesus restores him, confirms him, accepts him, loves him. Kidding me? Yahweh's gonna do this. He himself will do it. He will keep us. He will give us the grace we need every step of the way, no matter what we face. That's what we're praying for our brother, right? Keep him. Keep him. Yeah, protect him. Protect him from the enemy who wants to devour his faith. Keep him steadfast in his faith as he faces that persecution. Teach him to take those anxieties and cast them on Christ and to hold fast and preach the gospel to himself and trust in the promises and the strong arm of the Lord. He will see us through by his mighty hand and outstretched arm. Why? Because he's mighty to save forever. The divine, this is from David Helm, the divine principle of true grace is this. Our future inheritance arrives by way of present sufferings. Exaltation follows humiliation. Eternal glory comes after earthly suffering. Peter knowing this. He's experienced it, and he knows there's more to come. He breaks out into song, and he says, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He worships, and he gives us his greeting, final greeting by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Most people think this is, this is another spelling for Silas. We saw a lot in Acts I've written to you briefly, looks like Silas delivered the letter, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What's the true grace of God? The whole, the whole point of the letter. He's chosen us. Yeah, you're rejected by the world and you'll suffer in the world, but all we have is hope in the gospel and God will see us through. That's the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, most likely refers to the church in Rome, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's amazing. Humble ourselves underneath the mighty hand of God. He'll see us through. I love it. The kiss of love, it's a cultural thing. I get nervous with the cultural things. I don't like to just default to that, but I'm gonna employ it here pretty swiftly because even then, like in that culture, like which still exists today, is a cheek-to-cheek thing, a man-to-man, woman-to-woman, but cheek-to-cheek, not 
that's what they meant by kiss of love, greeting each other with a kiss. Uh, I, I truly believe in our culture, we can fulfill this command with a hug, with a handshake, with some of you just knuckles is sufficient to let you know, yeah, we're family. We love one another. Because that has been the strong theme that's followed all this. You're gonna suffer in this world. We all have the same hope. So love one another. Love one another. We need to remind each other of the hope that we have. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you for your mighty hand to save your perfect work, Lord Jesus, to save us, to rescue us, that you suffered in our place and rose in victory and sit enthroned in glory and that you've called us to it. I pray that we would not only see that and rejoice in it, but that we would be faithful to follow your example in the times that we suffer and are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel, that we would finish strong, finish well. Lord, I pray that if there's those here that don't know you, that in your kindness you'd lead them to repentance and faith, that you'd rescue them even tonight. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.